Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Julie Callio, and we're here today with Anna Lee Good and her recently published book, Teachers at the Table, Voice, Agency, and Advocacy in Educational Policy Making, published by Lexington Books. Anna Lee is an evaluator and researcher at the Wisconsin Center for Education Research, co-director of the Wisconsin Evaluation Collaborative, and director of the WCER Evaluation Clinic. Anna Lee, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited to talk with you. We also have with us today another co-host, Jerry Dreyer, a graduate student in educational leadership and policy analysis here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and longtime educator. Jerry, welcome to the podcast and thank you for being with us today. Thanks for inviting me. So, Annalie, I was wondering if we could start by actually having you read the first few paragraphs of the book because they tell us a bit about your background and the impetus for this book. I would be happy to. Thank you. I was a middle school social studies teacher in public schools before before becoming an educational researcher and policy scholar. As a teacher, I worked very hard and cared about my students, our school, and my profession. I paid attention to politics. I had a solid understanding of how government works, talked frequently with other teachers about the nature of the policies we were expected to implement, and occasionally reached out to legislators to express frustration or thanks. I loved teaching, and I loved talking policy. I was the teacher who should have been actively involved in policy advocacy, but I wasn't. I should have been on local councils to write assessment policies, attending legislative committee hearings, or working with advocacy groups to propose and oppose legislation, but I wasn't. There are individual reasons that may have presented barriers to becoming a policy advocate, possibly situated in my personality, personal obligations at home, or how my own social identities related to race, class, or gender situate or privilege me in this process. Or simply, I could have just stepped up more. But I often felt there was something else. This book represents a systematic inquiry into that feeling that there are larger and more systemic forces that make it hard for teachers to engage in policymaking. Maybe from there, as a social studies teacher, what brought you to education policy studies here at UW? Um, So I loved, I always intended to be an eighth grade social studies teacher for my career. Um, I loved it. I love working with middle school students. I loved social studies and history and civics. Um, But as many of us who are classroom teachers know that Um, You need to, at some point, get a master's degree um, if you want to get anywhere in a uh, tiered pay scale. Um, And I was interested in the content as well. So I uh, came to UW-Madison. I was fortunate enough to um, have the opportunity to come to the Educational Policy Studies Department here at UW um, because I wanted to look at policy. And I, again, back to what I was just reading, was always interested in policy and politics and thought, hey, if I'm going to go get my master's anyway, um, this is a a content area that's really interesting to me. And once I was here, I got sucked in and ended up finishing um, going on with my doctorate uh, to focus in on, again, K-12 education policy and how it lands and also how it interacts with classroom teachers. 
So then that brings us to when did you get this idea to write this book? Um, so you, you note in the conclusion that right now is sort of a big moment for teachers being involved in policy, whether it's the teacher strikes or teachers running for office. Um, so this seems pretty timely. So if you could give us sort of the how did this come about? Mm hmm. I mean, in a way, unfortunately, it's always timely uh, because yeah. these d dynamics have kind of always been there. And of course, that has a lot to do with the gendered nature of the teaching profession. That has a lot to do with um, how youth work and how any work with youth is situated inside of the power dynamics, um, not only in the institution of schooling and public schooling, but also with, with policymaking. Um, I, so when I started um, with my graduate program, I was in a course one of the first courses I took was the sociology of, of schools um, with Dr. Metz and then also introduction to policy analysis. So it was this great, you know, this choice of these two courses together where I really coming literally fresh out of three months previous, having been in a classroom, was able to do kind of what graduate schools kind of helps you do is to situate your own experiences inside these larger system systems and forces and theories. Um, and so between those two courses, started to really think deeply about, okay, well, why... <laughs> All these things I'm learning about the policymaking process and all these things I'm learning about how schools are organized, how do those two things come together along with what is still really still visceral having, you know, literally just stepped out of the classroom. Um, and so the first paper I wrote for both of those two courses, the semester paper was how do we do this differently? Like how do we get teacher voice into policymaking one from the school organization side, like what is it about the organization of schools that might be a barrier or a facilitator? And then what about the policymaking process could better facilitate, you know, mm -hmm. teacher voice? I think that brings us to a really nice quote. Um, and you use a lot of the voices of the teachers um, in your book. So there's a quote from Jen. And she says, as an educator, it seems a bit backwards that while we are the ones that need to enforce new policy and welcome it into our classrooms, we are also the ones who have little to no say in how it is made or how it should effectively be utilized. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that quote and Jen. Mm -hmm. um, and then... Um, bridging into kind of how policy positions teachers? Mm -hmm. I think there's an interesting um, discussion often with classroom teachers around kind of perceived power and actual mm -hmm. power and informal power and formal power. So teachers have a lot of power. Um, oftentimes it's informal. Mm -hmm. And um, in, the, in the case study that I did that, that then worked into this, into the book, Teachers would talk about how they had no power, but then turn around and talk about all the things that they did on a classroom or a school level to change the way things were. And I don't want to be overly romantic about teachers' power in schools um, because it's a, inside of these systems and contexts that where they aren't situated with a whole lot of, of at least formal power. One of the things I felt was interesting and, again, was one of the kind of themes in the book is that the perceived hierarchy of power in schools and that there is a real hierarchy of power, absolutely. Um, but that that doesn't tell the whole story. And I think in a way, which is why I kind of formatted the book the way it did, where it, the second half is, well, how do we push back? When we push back, under what conditions do we push back? And part of it is when teachers start to think uh, together and talk together about the places where they do have power. So I, I think then to the second part of your question around how teachers are situated, um, I feel fortunate that I love sociology. I think it's a super interesting way to think about the world um, and that sociology, uh, one of the ways that helps us think about things is in these terms of like structures and systems and institutions and that when teachers are situated, so the sociological literature is helpful in understanding that teachers are implementers. Teachers occasionally have a voice in the discourse of policy, um, but oftentimes the way that a, that a policy will situate teachers as, as the target, the policy target, versus setting the agenda, which has its own, its own element of power um, in there. And so in a school level or, or at a district level, they're often situated in the policy themselves as implementers, mm -hmm. um, which then presents a certain set of opportunities, but also limitations in, in how they see themselves. Um, and I think, again, at the beginning of your question, even though this is, it's always timely, um, it's particularly timely now and in, I think in a really positive way. And I think in the way that teachers and teacher voice are 
thinking of different ways that they can actualize, um, whether it's through unions and or whether it's through social media or whether it's through locally kind of in a more um, intimate way. I think it's it's been really empowering to watch. So let's turn um, more specifically to the book. Um, so you divided it into three parts. Um, and you use this metaphor of the table, and this is kind of the, the policymaking table. So you be- begin with setting the table. You talk about the um, how you frame it in terms of institutional theory. And then you look at the trouble with getting to the table. And then when teachers are at the table, the way they become agents in policymaking. Um, so let's you, – you hinted at this sociological framing. Um, so when you're setting the table – so – if you can provide for those of us who aren't as familiar with institutional theory, how did you kind of use that to frame this work? And then we'll talk a little bit about where the methods, like where and how this was done. Sure. So one of the things that was so interesting to me, again, you know, coming from heavily situated in practice as a classroom teacher, and then you come into graduate school and all the things a graduate school can do um, in the way that you think and see the world. And one of them was, you know, (laughs) in that sociology of of, uh, teaching class, you know, the first day saying, so school is for sorting. Right. And you sit back, what? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay. And then you think about all the ways that your own personal experiences or your own, um, you know, how you're situated fits into this larger, um, you know, to use, you know, like isomorphic, like if from, from place to place, we see these these patterns happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the things I think that was um really wonderful about applying these lenses to it is that this isn't, yes, it's a case study, Mm -hmm. but it's not isolated. You know, that these are patterns that happen across the institution of schooling. So for institutional theory, one of the things that's really helpful to me is that institutions are these, these social institutions that, that society has that helps like organize ourselves and make sense of it. One of which is schooling and that in the institution of schooling, there are norms and structures that again, Dic- not dictate, uh, but guide or um, sometimes constrain or uh, our behavior and inside of it, how we make sense of it, and the norms. And so one of the things, one of the pieces of institutional theory is like the importance of these norms. Um, because the norms as social beings can sometimes be just as if not more important than the actual physical structures around us. So the norms that I really focused in on, which are norms that were esta- well-established um, in the sociological literature before, you know, for, for decades and decades, um, and the three that I kind of focused in on, one was the nature of teachers' work. Um, so lots of different sociologists, um, you know, thinking about what is the nature of teachers' work? How is it different? Um, and there's two particular themes that came out as I looked into the nature of teachers' work. One is time, so the amount and the structure of time. And then the second is the isolation. So the, um, the idea that teachers, even though they're in these spaces with lots of other teachers, their day, their work day, or in other terms, their technology is really isolating as a professional, quasi-professional, which goes to one of the other norms. So the second norm then is this perceived hierarchy of authority authority, or the, the power structures in schools and then where teachers place themselves in it. And so Jerry and I are um, part of an organization that we can talk about later. But one of the things that we do when we work with practicing teachers, one of the first things we do often is to say, either map or draw out the policymaking process in education and give them a blank piece of paper and they go. And it is almost to a T, always hierarchical, the way Mm -hmm. that they draw them. And then we say, okay, now put a star where you are as a classroom teacher, and you can imagine where they usually put themselves. And that prompts a really interesting conversation. And then at the end of these workshops that we do, we have them go back to the drawing and either revise or maybe not, or sometimes they change where they are and they change it. Um, So this, again, this second norm around the the ideas around authority was really key. And then the third one was... um, the literature and the norms around identity and specifically teachers as professionals or quasi-professionals. Um, because I, in a lot of ways that came out in how teachers talked about their worthiness or legitimacy to engage in policy work because they were almost already thinking of themselves as not worthy to engage in some magical policymaking process when when we, you know, oftentimes we come back and are saying, look, these are just humans making decisions based on information and the perspectives that they have. That's you. That can be you. That should be you. Um, but that norm of them not seeing themselves and then others not seeing themselves as professional. Yeah, I like it. Later in the book, you talk about demystifying the policymaking process. And that was new definitely for me as I was reading it to think about like one of the pieces of access is just this is the way policy is made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that's removing one of those barriers. Um, so you frame it in terms of institutional theory. Um, and I think maybe we should back up and talk about policy. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about policy um, when you are working with these educators, um, whether they're uh, you call them intern educators, right? Mm-hmm. So they're mm-hmm. um, becoming teachers or mentor teachers. How do you talk about policy? Stephen Ball uh, was and continues to be um, <clears throat> an influential way for me to think about what policy is and what policymaking is. Um, so the context of policymaking, you know, it's not the linear um, step one follows, you know, and then followed by step two, et cetera, that it's all these different contexts of policymaking. Um, text is, is one of them. So if, if then from that and some other um, frameworks out of policy studies, the way that I think about policy is it's, it's kind of in three parts. There's the text, there's the discourse, and then there's in practice. And if we think of teachers as policymakers, obviously, oftentimes they're framed as policymakers in practice. So um, that's the street-level bureaucrats type literature, the frontline professionals, where um, teachers or social workers, they enact policy and they make policy in the implementation of it. It's the discourse and the text that often, when we talk about teachers missing from the policymaking process, is in the discourse and the text of it. So in the book, and I and I focused in this on, you know, even the interview protocols and the focus groups, is where are they in the text writing part of policy? And where are they in the discourse around the focus of policy, the targets of policy, um, you know, the constraints and, and facilitators? Can you give us an example? Like when I think of policy, I think like no child left behind. And then that gets like really yeah. big. But so, yeah. So maybe if you have an example, yeah. either big or, or local. Yeah, no, that's a great example. So from a federal, like let's, yes, let's take, um, you know, ESEA. So the, so no child left behind or now ESSA. Um, so the text of it is, of course, that massive multi-hundred page text of the legislation itself. Text can also then fall under the, you know, the federal guidance, the non-regulatory mm-hmm. guidance that then the, the agencies issue that become written text of policy. The discourse around it, and in the case of No Child Left Behind, for example, think of all the discourse swirling around what ended up in what that text is. And so that includes all the way back through, you know, um, nation at risk, or you think about like what preempted this um, high stakes accountability context that No Child Left Behind did not create, but was this really uh, crystallized example of on the federal level. And of course, we have on state level and local level, et cetera. But if the discourse around what, A, if the discourse around that schools are failing, because that is part of the discourse Mm -hmm. that fed No Child Left Behind is that schools are failing and that that is very much part of nation at risk and, you know, a national discourse around international competition, et cetera. Then that builds, okay, this discourse around, well, why is it failing? And you can, you know, there's so many different nuanced conversations to have around uh, concepts of failure and who, who is failing education, who is failing in education. Um, oftentimes then in that discourse, it's that, and this was the way that nation at risk, you know, not to put everything on that because it absolutely was not, but as a, again, a crystallization of of the discourse is that um, it's teachers. It's teachers that are failing. What do we need to do in order to fix that quote, air, air quotes? Um, teachers are kind of absent from that discourse, um, especially on a federal level. Like, you know, think about where are teachers in that, narr- that um, narrative around the role of teachers in where we are with public schools now. And then practice is, you know, again, as a teacher, you know, I was a classroom teacher when No Child Left Behind came down. And, and, and you think about it, I mean, you, and many of us were, that what happens and what happened when that federal policy came down and then the states were left with, oh, okay, wow, we have to put this into practice. And so as an example, there was the highly qualified teacher requirement under No Child Left Behind where um, you had to have, and it was really content focused. It wasn't pedagogic. It was if you are teaching a course, you have to have a certain amount of credits and to the extent of almost degrees in that content area. And I happened to be teaching in a rural district at the time. This is not going to happen. I don't understand how they thought that was going to happen. Again, if you had listened to some educators in the writing of that text, maybe that would have looked a little bit different. Um, but how that ended up in practice was not how it was conceptualized in, in text, but that became the policy. Is how, What does that highly qualified teacher component of No Child Left Behind look like in practice was uh, 
a whole bunch of uh, like stopgap measures of how are we going to make sure that we don't get, you know, dinged and sanctioned, but also uh, have a budget to actually then do all the other things we're supposed to do in a school. Thank you. That's really helpful to kind of bring it to. Um... I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. An example of that policy. So now if we shift to the methods. So you were doing mm-hmm. this in West Virginia mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as part of a professional development school around teaching teachers um, and intern teachers about policy advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe can you tell us a little bit about that context and sure. the people you talk to? Sure. So really fortunate during my uh, graduate school Time um, to have a colleague, uh, Adrian Johnson Williams, Dr. Williams, um, who at the time then had finished and she was uh, faculty at University of West Virginia. And she was teaching pre-service teachers and she and I both had an interest and we were in study groups together um, around this teacher voice, you know, question. So we, you know, we're talking and she's like, I'm going to try that. I mean, we're right now, we're not teaching pre-service teachers about policy, but I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this course. And I want to <clears throat> I want to try an equivalent with in-service teachers because we're a professional development school and I'm thinking about this. So then, of course, I was thinking about, you know, my own dissertation and thinking about well, where am I going to do this? And so just we continued talking and she was really wonderful, like, you know, mentor, partner, colleague to um, to do this work with because she was doing this workshop and then a course with pre-service teachers where then I could be part of a little bit of the design that was really, really her, but I was doing, you know, some of the, I was doing the research side of it and then also had her as, you know, this, um, this partner to think through that. So that's why it was in West Virginia. Um, so we, she did the in-service and then the, um, pre-service work and then through that and, and, you know, frankly, part of the in-service, we had a lot of challenges getting teachers to come, which is not unusual. And if I, knew the themes of my work before doing that. And one of which is they don't have any time, which I knew, I don't know what, you know, no time, but, uh, they, that isolation piece came out because when they did come, it was, Oh, this is so wonderful to be able to talk. So what we ended up doing, you know, we had to kind of shift midstream because the, the in-service workshops weren't happening like we had intended. Um, so we shifted more to almost basically just focus groups but it was so fascinating during, and many of us who are in qualitative work um, know this happens a lot, where the focus group becomes a community mm-hmm. <laughs> of people who tend not to be able to talk about this stuff with each other. And so that's what ended up happening in that there was this really interesting dynamic that happened in the focus groups, which were you know no more than an hour, where educators from the same school sometimes were talking about things that they didn't have an opportunity to talk with because they don't have time. So then that prompted the you know, a lot around, well, when we have space to do this, you know, what are the conditions that, that promote advocacy and promote even just teachers feeling like they have the capacity to do it? Um, and then the pre-service side was, was really wonderful to be a part of. It was, um, you know, undergraduate uh, pre-service teachers who, as a module, as part of their training, did this, uh, this policy advocacy course that, um, that Dr. Johnson-Williams had, had created. Um, and so I did a lot of interviewing, um, observation of the, of the workshops. Um, so it was a case study in that way. It was a qualitative case study. And then the only other piece is that I also drew on a number of different national teacher surveys. Um, and I went into each of the surveys and pulled items that were relevant to the different themes inside of the 
case study. So it was an interesting way in my mind to bring a little bit of scale to it is to say, you know, and again, the, the point wasn't being generalizable uh, necessarily, but it was more saying, look, pay attention. Like, this is not just this one case in West Virginia, you know, and, and this is across the country. And then now look at what's changing over time where teachers are getting even like more frustrated and feeling like they're even less engaged in policymaking. Um, and then subsequently, <clears throat> through some of the work, for example, that, you know, Jerry and I can talk about, but we've continued to kind of include some of those data as as we continue to work with teachers to kind of uh, expand those themes and think more around um, how is this emerging over time. Excellent. Um, I was going to actually note that it was a really rich data set and the, the national surveys I felt like gave a way to kind of contextualize this um, in a way that was really helpful. So I think with that, um, let's talk about some of these barriers that you identified. So you've already hinted at a couple of them, time, isolation. Um, so let's actually go to feeling powerless. And that was actually somebody said the word powerless. And that was reading this was um, personal, too, as mm. I was reading this and mm -hmm. feeling like, yep, that's what it feels like. Um, so I want to read one quote um, from this so to the question of why don't more teachers get involved in advocating for certain policy issues? And this was Mr. Elliott said, well, some policy issues they don't think they can do anything about. They think it's, you know, it's set from the state school board or from the legislature and they feel powerless to change that. That's not necessarily true, but that might be the feeling. And I think that gets at um, you emphasize that this is about understanding the teacher's perspective and uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about why it's important to have it from the teacher's perspective, those barriers. Um, as sort of setting up why it's hard to get involved in policy advocacy. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and why it's important to have teacher perspective on the content of the policy or on the barriers to both. Yeah. So like in your understanding as mm -hmm. a researcher, understanding teacher perspective, but then how does that then mm -hmm. translate over to when you're making policies? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think in a lot of cases, you know, the teachers, a lot of the barriers that the teachers talked about aren't, unsurmountable. Mm -hmm. We can do this. Like, you know, and many, and then half the book is like, yeah, and people do do it. So like, how do we facilitate this and how do we support it? Um, and so hearing from teachers, I mean, a lot of them have kind of the solution, you know, like we like to say a lot, like solutions are usually local. Like you mm -hmm. just ask, you know, people have probably figured this out. Hearing teachers' perspectives on why they're not as involved as they as they want to be, or they feel like they can be, um, I felt was key, totally, you know, was completely critical because, um, again, back to like, there are patterns and I think there are things. And, and again, we've tried to do this then moving forward is, all right, what can we learn around what teachers need in order to, to be feel agency, you know, in, mm -hmm. in policymaking in terms of why it's important to have teacher voice in in the policy discourse and the text writing itself is it's like a validity. I mean, it's just going to be better policy. And I don't, I don't understand the, well, why are you surprised that the implementation isn't what you intended when the design of it, the text and the discourse didn't include the people who are implementing it. And this has of course application to many other fields besides education where the implementers are the, the least of those um, who have with voices uh, in, in the design process. So it's, it's important from a quality policy standpoint. Um, it's also important from almost a symbolic standpoint that teachers, if they know, if it wasn't their voice, but that there were teacher voices in the design of policy, then there's probably a little bit more buy-in. There's a little bit like you know, they can kind of smell that teachers were involved, you know, that like, oh, they get it, that I'm not going to be able to do this in the spring in May because that's all the testing windows. And so like, thank you for not expecting that we were going to be able to do that in May because May is not an option. You know, those kind of very practical things um, and kind of strategic things that that teachers can do. I wish that there was more of a of a research base around what happens when teachers are involved. Um, there's a little bit, but it's a little dated and, you know, we've done a little work to try to do some lit review and on, um, 
teachers as policy advocates, there's just not a ton on well, what happens when teachers are involved in the policymaking process, what happens with the actual quality and the implementation of the policy itself. I wanted to ask, kind of coming back to like why teachers might not feel like policy agents, like they mm-hmm. have that control. And you talked a little bit about, you mentioned earlier, like um, teaching profession is gendered, mm-hmm. maybe the role of that a little bit. And also just like um, kind of the structural part of it of just teacher preparation, hmm. like how that does or mm-hmm. doesn't position teachers as policy agents. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, the history of the teaching profession in the United States is fascinating and again, gendered. Um now within the teaching profession, I mean, there's all different overlapping intersections of different, you know, how social identities and social groups impact then the power structures inside of who teachers are, um, where they're teaching, um, their voices in various uh, roles within a district too. Um, I think, and, and, in terms of of pre-service and structurally how we organize pre-service teaching, you know, part of that is the discourse around like, what is teaching? What is the role of a teacher that has, that has changed? And when we think about like the goals of schooling in the United States, if we like, again, look to the historians, look to the philosophers um, to help us think through like, well, how have we looked at schooling differently? Therefore also, how do we look at what the role of a teacher is differently? And if, under a high stakes accountability and more kind of neoliberal frame, teachers are delivering <laughs> a, a service that is in the context of um, commercial, you know, like how are we going to create consumers? How are we going to create producers? Not how are we going to create citizens? Like how are we going to guide human beings as citizens and uh, ethical, responsible, you know, equity focused human beings versus a piece of a, of an economy. So that's a really different role for teachers. And so from a teacher prep standpoint, policy doesn't really have a role in that ladder. I mean, right. You think about if they're just delivering and, and you see that playing out in how curriculum is, is structured or how, you know, and, and we've, there's certainly an arc to that historically too. Um, if pre-service programs, I think part of it and I'm not a I'm not a teacher educator. You know, I I don't I'm not a scholar of teacher education, so I don't want to speak out of out of my uh, wheelhouse here. But I do I feel like also teacher ed programs are under a lot of the same constraints as K twelve schools, where they're now there's a ton of stuff you have to cram into a de- a decreasing amount of time too, because you're competing with like online certification programs or what whatever, where you have to cram all this stuff in, um, and policy gets pushed out as well that's that that would be awesome if we could do it but we just we just can't so part of i think what the finding spaces where you can do this is leveraging this what's there like how can we talk about policy in the context of the other things that you feel like you do have to get in to a pre-service program and i will mention too that um so dr may haro who i've done work with this as well um we've talked about thinking about an interesting cross case study where, so she is in teacher education and she's talked about, look, you know, most of the learning happens with pre-service teachers in that mentoring role with their, their coordinating or supervising teacher. So if that's where we need to focus learning about policy, how do we structure pre-service programs to then, because that, that, that means building the capacity of the mentor teacher and the pre-service teacher, which I love that idea. And and so that, you know, she and I have been talking about, okay, okay what would that look like from a, like a workshop <laughs> and then structuring reflection, ongoing reflection, you know, around that too. Um, and that's a different, that's a different task than saying uh, we need a course on policy. I don't think they're mutually exclusive and they shouldn't be, but um I think that in reflection and in dialogue piece is really important to how adults learn. I was thinking too specifically about um, who gets recruited into the teaching profession. Mm. And you had, um, I think it was a quote from one of the participants who said, mm. um, the people who go into teaching are generally have done well in school, mm-hmm. which like same for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then 
are very compliance driven. Like we want to do well. Mm -hmm. And so we look to, okay, well, what am I supposed to do? We're looking for someone else to to tell us. And then we do that. And we think like, that's how you be a good teacher. Um, So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. And I don't know if you have any stories of the people, the teachers that you've worked with over the years of how that's played out. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it's interesting in the, in the current context too, where at least collectively, a lot of teachers are like, nope, done. You know, I'm put, and of course, there's a long history of that of that collective pushback. Um, but I, it's an interesting, um, you know, where where teachers are at their breaking point. Like, what is the breaking point? And and I tried to get at that a little. You know, in the study is is I didn't use those words, but what's your breaking point? You know, what what is it when you're like you go over the you tip over the edge and you're like I'm okay, I can't not. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really wound in also with uh, with people's when they come into a space with. Um, sets of privileges and you know when when can you you know a privilege is being able to choose when you're going to engage and push back is absolutely part of privilege um so i think yeah so specific stories i think there were some interesting the veteran teachers were really interesting because they had um an ability i think of course they had perspective and then they had ability to say you know, whether it was informal or for, formal power to say, um, I can take some more risks mm-hmm. um, because it is risky oftentimes to, especially now in, in the context of losing collective bargaining and losing, you know, what the, what unions have built in terms of uh, protections. And so it's risky. And I think the older veteran teachers were really interesting about how to navigate that um, and what structures were in place to help them do that. So one had been, um, you know, at the state level involved in uh, this effort to create standards around teacher leaders. So she, you know, she was able to engage that way. And it was like the sanctioned way to engage, but then it also elevated her role within her own local, you know, situation. So the school and the district, um, I think the unions in a lot of ways to also created this structure where teachers had a capacity built, you know, they literally were taught how to lobby mm-hmm. or literally taught how to negotiate. Um, there were like just policy updates, you know, so that structure builds a capacity that then teachers feel like they're more comfortable pushing back. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. Um, one of the teachers, I think it was the same teacher talking about, being recognized by others mm-hmm. as a leader mm-hmm. was an important part of it. And in terms of writing standards, then it was sort of like, but then it takes away, you're trying to formalize an yeah. informal power. But that was one way that they saw as having power to mm-hmm. actually be a policy advocate. Um, and she gives the example of even so much as holding the meeting closer to the school district right. and not having to drive all the way to the right. capital to be involved. And I think to your point about things will just work better mm-hmm. <laughs> when you have those voices mm-hmm. because then people can actually be there and engage in it. And I think at the same time, you know, back to the earlier quote that you read, when teachers feel like their voices are tokenized and that they, they're asked, but then nothing happens or they fill out the survey and they never see the data from the survey and they never actually see anything change because of the survey or they're asked to be on a committee and they're tokenized on the committee um, is counterproductive. That's worse mm-hmm. in a lot of ways because then it's like, well, I spent all that time and now nothing has changed. And now I definitely do not want to do that again. Like I don't want to now engage or attempt because there's just no point. Um, so on that note, let's let's shift to when they're at the table and how did you find that they were pushing back and um, having agency over um, being involved in the in policy? Um, so you talk about having capacity to do it and the will to do it. Um, and I think we've talked a little bit now about personality traits of being involved. Um, and I, I like how you draw this out, um, that it's also kind of a function of capacity and experience and issues as well. Because I think in leadership, we often attribute things to like people are naturally mm. just good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really appreciated this part of, of drawing that out. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, so the, the capacity of it, you know, there's a lot Obviously, time is absolutely part of that's a structural part of capacity. But then teachers almost, again, it's so consistent. Anytime we're working with teachers, we come in and they say, well, I don't know policy. 
but, and then they'll go into some detailed description of ESSA or some detail. I mean, the special ed teachers, holy cow, do they know policy? You know what I mean? Like they have to, and they, but they don't define it as such. And they certainly don't define themselves as policy experts. So, and I think Jerry, you can speak to this too. When we go in and we say, we're here because you're policy experts, it's like this facial expression change that um, they're thinking of themselves differently. And then of course asking, well, what, like how, what do you mean when you say that? And then we talk more about, well, this is what we mean when we say policy. This is what we mean when we say expert. Um, so the capacity is partly that self-efficacy or that, or that idea of identity of themselves as a professional and as an expert. And so that's part of that capacity building. And then it's just also just the knowledge, you know, the, the policy 101 that includes their own knowledge and expertise around policy. But we found that they, teachers really do kind of want that little, you know, policy 101 type thing to also have the language to mm-hmm. use. And then similarly, it's not just around capacity around policy, but capacity around advocacy. So I think advocacy is also needs to be demystified because people think of it as, well, I have to know how to show up at my legislator's office and give a two minute lobbying speech. And that's not, I mean, sure, that's, that's totally important. That is an important place. But the advocacy, I think part of our role is to talk about all the different, the spectrum of advocacy and what that can look like, um, not only through social media, but also just locally versus state versus federal. So to your question around examples of, of the pushback, many, many, many talked, I mean, most talked in the context of locally. You know, when I asked about, you know, when asked them to talk about times when they had engaged in policymaking or in pushing back or talking about advocacy, it was usually local, with the exception of those couple who talked about that they were on a committee and a state level committee, et cetera. But what that looks like locally can be lots of different things. It can be showing up at a school board and people talked about that, or it can be um, calling a bunch of teachers to meet after school to talk about the cell phone policy Mm -hmm. and that the handbook is not doing what it needs to be doing in terms of the cell phone policy. And maybe that they, because they know best and then, you know, should come up with a new cell phone policy. Um, And the way that I kind of tried to think about that as capacity building is first of all, from like an asset approach is that, look, you, you do advocate, you know, you do this already. Let's name the places where you do that. Let's name the places where you are a policymaker so that it's part of that identity already. It's not something they have to take on. It's something that they have. And then it's actualizing it and emphasizing and amplifying it. Um, and I think that a lot of the skills that happen when you're doing that locally in places that are at first comfortable, you know, more comfortable on a school level or on a district level are this oftentimes the same skills that then, okay, now I'm going to go down to the Capitol. I feel comfortable now standing and talking. I've done it in front of the school board. Now I'm comfortable to go do that with, you know, some friends or whatever, but like go down and do that. So it's on this spectrum of building an identity and then also building literally, you know, the capacity around that. So something I think about a lot is the the scale of our actions, right? And I think when when we define problems really um, in such a large way that it takes these like big actions that it actually prevents us from taking mm-hmm. any action. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate what you say about, okay, here's this local policy. Maybe it's just about cell phones in the classroom and mm-hmm. we know what we actually want about that. Mm-hmm. And then that is this sort of like intermediate step to then taking bigger action. But mm-hmm. when we ask the first thing to be the big action, yep. we get kind of stuck. Um, I also really appreciate you talk at the very end about um, reculturing Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to me that that's really this is the work of reculturing educators to see themselves mm-hmm. as knowledgeable and having expertise in policymaking and and that step of naming it as this pathway to reculturing. Um, and that sort of weaves back into mm-hmm. that uh, institutional theory. And I think part of reculturing, too, is the is the the visibility of advocacy. Like, where do teachers see other teachers doing this? And certainly locally, that's that's more possible in, in, a, in a certain way. You know, you can see that other teachers are showing up to a school board meeting, whatever. But I think social media is a really interesting way for teachers to see advocacy is more visible. It can be more distant, but it's more visible in that you're seeing, you know, so example I like to use is the, um, is BAT, or the Badass Teachers Association, which is, you know, came out of, social media. Um, it is a powerhouse of 
policy advocacy and it's across states and it's it's an amazing thing to to see um teachers seeing teachers doing this and all the different ways that you can do it there's not just one again this this you know you have to look like this as a you know or you're this lobbyist that like that's how you engage with with policymaking as an advocate seeing all these different ways that this can play out and then seeing yourself in it which i think social media and just the internet in general has created an opportunity for that before that maybe wasn't there as much. Mm-hmm. I think about that too. You you make the point that um, the importance of the mentor teacher, but then also learning from the intern teachers, though the younger mm-hmm. generation mm-hmm. that kind of comes in mm-hmm. and says, Hey, well, let's use social media to do this thing that there's that that's a, t- a bi-directional yes. relationship and that they're learning how to do that together. Um, I really appreciated that point. And I want to call out too, cause I, I don't think I do at all a good job of this in the book is calling out youth voice and youth mm-hmm. advocacy, um, which if I were to do it over again, um, would do a lot more of because I think there's not enough of that <clears throat> allyship between adults and youth um, in terms of making educational policy better. Because boy, if we talk about the lack of youth voice in policymaking, that's even more you know pronounced. Um, but mm-hmm. I think that a lot of ways... There's so much that adults can learn from youth about how to um, community organize and how to advocate, and especially in you know an online space. I think when you were talking about that, just that um, the way teachers uh, shift their perception, like when you give them, is almost like a, a, a literacy of policy hmm. mm-hmm. that they come in, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe feeling kind of illiterate in a way mm-hmm. or disempowered, and then just giving them that language and then. And then their 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 role really shifts there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like thinking of it in those terms. That that um and that the literacy is in all different forms. Mm-hmm. Um, and that part of it is is what is their you know what is what are the terms they use you know is also us understanding when you talk about policy because I know you do. How do you talk about it? Where do you talk about it? Who do you talk about it with? Yeah, seeing it in the discourse that they themselves use mm-hmm. and being able to integrate that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Annalie, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I'd like to ask you one final question, and that is, what are you working on now? I really appreciate that question because um, it's exciting to talk about. So um, from a research standpoint, again, I mentioned what Dr. Har and I are thinking about um, and are excited about uh, looking at. I think, you know, and then there's also um, – there are – Pockets that are missing in the research. So that's one thing. And, and Jerry and another um, graduate student, John Harper, and I worked on a just a review, kind of a lit review of what is um, what is the research base around teachers as policy advocates. So that's going to be coming out in the fall. Um, but then WePOP is what we're super excited about. So WePOP stands for the Wisconsin uh, Education Policy Practice and Outreach, or I flipped them around, but. Um, so I taught a class a couple of years ago on teachers and policy. And at the end of the course, um, you know, we all said, now what? <clears throat> so WePOP is a, is a grad student group um, that, that I help facilitate where we, the goal of which is to facilitate um, dialogue between practicing teachers, pre-service teachers, and policymaking. Um, and so we have a couple different goals, and Jerry is uh, very much uh, part of WePOP. I'll let you jump in too. But one of the one of the goals, we have a couple different threads or strands. Um, one is we show up where teachers are. And so one of the places where teachers are um, is our ed camps. So if you're not familiar with ed camps, um, they're, they're in doing air quotes right now uh, on conferences. So they're educator led um, conference spaces where there's no keynote, there's no agenda ahead of time. You just show up, um, you propose a session, no one, maybe no one shows up, and then you get some feedback on the uh, <laughs> salience of your topic. Um, but we show up, and I'm going to let you talk more because Jerry's really leads on what those ed camp spaces um, are. But just briefly, the other two kind of strands that we do are working with pre-service teachers in workshops during the summer on kind of the policy 101. Um, and then the third is, which is emerging, but writing policy and practice briefs where we um, take the research, we take teacher voice on a particular policy issue, and then we write a brief that then um, ideally teachers are going back to their own legislators with because they don't want to hear from us. Um, legislators with to say, you know, this is important to me. This is the research base, which is what we can bring. This is the teacher voice, which 
many can bring, um, but they have something to come with, you know, to, to go show up. But I'll let Jerry talk a little bit about the EdCamp work. Sure. At EdCamps, we uh, usually take a, a topic that's kind of in the media often. So something that might be in front of the budget or the legislature or it's just kind of in the paper it might be discipline. Uh, this year we did work around mental health policy. Um, and uh, we just kind of asked teachers about it. We sort of facilitated a conversation about it and we use that as an entree kind of into some of the terminology and frameworks around policy. So we talk about what does this look like at a, at a policy, at a written text level, at discourse, what does it look like in your classroom, and just to kind of help teachers to identify the places where they have leverage. Um, they're short. They're an hour-long workshop, but um, I think we generally get uh, quite a bit out of it. I think teachers are surprised at how much they already know mm-hmm. um, and how much, how much power they have, and I think they come out kind of looking for more. So. And we always have the last five minutes of it is a um, advocacy 101 type yeah, thing. Yeah, and it's yeah. real tech heavy. So we like in a Google Doc say, all right, this is how you write an op-ed. Yeah. This is how you get to your state legislators. This is how you track, yeah. you know, committee actions and things like that. Very cool. Um, well, thank you both for being with you, being with us today. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, and we will look forward to hearing more about WePop. Um, if listeners, if you want to hear more, um, we will post the website for WePop and the Twitter handle. You can follow all of their good work. Um, so thank you listeners as well for being with us today as we talked to Annalie Good, the author of Teachers at the Table, Voice, Agency, and Advocacy in Educational Policymaking. Your hosts today were Julie Callio. Jerry Dreyer. And thank you, Annalie, for being here. Thank you so much. So this has been an episode in the New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.